Bites. I am your host, Lauren Miller, and I am here with my father, Dallas Miller. He has been a very influential man in my life, um, and honestly, if I'm honest, a pretty incredible man. Um, has, yeah, aside from giving me life, he, um, he has been someone who's been very much in touch with his feelings, able to express them. So I'm lucky to be here with him and honored. So, so Dallas, tell me about, tell me about your name. So my mother must've had a good friend whose name was Dallas, and that's where they got the name from. So the name Dallas means gifted, and your name, middle name, also is Dallas. So I share your first name in my middle name. My name is Lauren Dallas. Mm -hmm. I think as a younger 20-something-year-old, I really struggled with my middle name. And Mm. I think as I've gotten older, I have come to love it because it's a reflection of sort of my upbringing and some of the things that has come to mean a lot for me. Yeah. So, and it very much represents how our lives have converged. Yeah. In these latter years. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. My early childhood, I think I kind of got lost in the crowd a little bit. I was number 4 of 10. And after me came another brother yeah. and then five more sisters. So we kind of made our own way. And we found things to do. We had table saw. We had all that on the back porch, which... And how old were you when you started using power tools? Uh, Maybe six. (laughs) And I still have all my How do you still have all your fingers? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So we found lots of ways to to entertain ourselves. You know, it's like we, we weren't bored. I remember you telling me one story where you had a a burlap sack or something what was that all about (laughs) we took a gunny sack and filled it you know it's kind of like burlap burlap okay knitted together and we filled it with straw tied a rope to it and it was several of us cousins together that night and we put it across the road from our house and we sat in this little shack a little shanty and when a car came we pulled it across the road in front of this car and so what we didn't anticipate was a screeching halt, you know, the car. And the neighbor man who lived down the road gets out of his car, goes to the house, yeah. and tells Dad there's something out loose out here. that We think it might be an animal or something. <laughs> so they're out there with their flashlights. Looking for And they animal. discover, we're listening to the whole thing <laughs> in the shed. Yeah. And he... Dad discloses to the neighbor, oh, I think... I think they, it's these boys. I think... And did you get in trouble? Uh, not really, no. He didn't, he didn't do anything. <laughs> He's like, Dad was, was uh, like, uh, one of those kind of guys who would play Boys, play boys will be boys. And he played tr- his fair share of tricks when that he was like... Pranks and yeah. stuff, yeah. <laughs> Fun things that what we a, did. What about the time, the, the more leaves story? More oh, leaves. We were living in Florida, and I was in first grade, and... Some of my classmates, they had this club that... What do you mean club? It like, was just a boys club, you yeah. know, it's kind of like, you know, and everybody wants to be in. So I right. said, I want to be. So they take me to this little woods 
and we had a little sand pile there that we were playing around and they said okay so for your initiation you have to smoke a cigarette <gasps> so they light it up for me and you know i want to be in i want to be in the right. in group so right. they light it up for me and i take a couple of drags and i cough <laughs> You know, about to die. Wow. So I that that was my cigarette smoking uh, your initiation extent for <laughs> most of my basically life, your lifetime <laughs> my lifetime. So I take it and stick it in the stick it in the sand, and then we go to this little corner clubhouse that basically was just some tin stacked up metal. Sheet oh, metal. Tin. tin, tin, sheet metal. Okay. And but in the corner of this email didn't come together very well. Right. Well, we lit a fire back in that little corner. Back in that little corner, and we just kept, you know, stacking leaves and stuff on it. And we said more leaves, more leaves. And pretty soon it got out through the corner crack, yeah. and it went out into the greenery, and started the whole woods on fire. The whole woods. The whole woods. The I mean, the entire it, woods got on it, fire. It. Escalated very quick, so we went running as fast as our little legs would carry us down the road. We climbed an orange tree, and we began to just pick oranges off and and rub them on our bodies to get rid of the smoke. As we watched the fire engines, you know, <laughs> wailing by, you know, <laughs> going to put the fire. Out. Oh, it's funny. So, yeah. So, and and you were just, uh, did you get in trouble for it? No, no. I don't know that anyone ever found ever, out. Ever found out. Yeah, I look back and I see as as a family, it felt like we were pretty adjusted. We were a pretty normal family. And a lot of uh, my early childhood is filled with memories of going camping. We took tents and we would go camping you were pretty outdoorsy adventurous people yes we were yeah and we did it very cheap and you also sort of traveled the country you started driving amish because of the nature of the area where we lived we took a load of uh, amish to so for for people that don't know like driving amish explain that whole well amish don't own cars but they will pay to have someone else take them on vacations and um, drive them, drive them like a taxi to places. So we had a van, a Chevy van that it was more like nine passengers. Okay. We probably had 15 people in it. <laughs> you pack them in there? <laughs> yeah. Like sardines? Little kids and yeah, everything yeah. And, and no seatbelts or anything. You know, oh, we just Because back then it wasn't even the law that you had to wear a seatbelt. Yeah, right. Wow. A lot of vehicles didn't even have seatbelts. I yeah. mean, that was pre-seatbelt era. But we went to Yellowstone National Park, took these uh, folks all the way out to Yellowstone and... Yeah. I would have been a teenager by then driving already. And did traveling across the country to some degree change your perspective of the world? Yes, I think it did because we began to just see all of the things there were to, was to see because we, we traveled to Florida. We traveled to uh, Niagara Falls. Yeah. We made a trip one time to Maine. I remember going to Washington DC. Yeah. It did. You know, help you see the broader picture of yeah. life was bigger than Davis County. Right, right. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. I was going to ask you 
oh, I was going to ask you the other story about technology. You know, so like you had electricity your whole life. Oh, yeah. We didn't have indoor bathroom early part of my life. You had an outhouse. We had an outhouse. So I remember when that came about. I mean, I was. And what was that? Just a hole in the ground? Well, yeah, it would have been. Yeah. So when you were born, you did not have indoor plumbing? No. We had water plumbed to the kitchen sink. That was all. We didn't have bathtubs. We would, Mama would heat water in cook pans for our weekly Saturday night bath. It was a bathtub that we had in the basement that she would fill up. Like with w- hot water, was it like a porcelain yeah. like tub? Yeah. Okay, old, so old claw's foot tub, okay. yeah, but it didn't have, yeah, it wasn't plumbed up. So, for phone, think about the Andy Griffith days where you had the phone on the wall. Did you have the, to call up the operator with the crank? Well, it depends if you knew what their number is. There was an operator, the operator was just one real long crank you know you just kept cranking it and for others you had so you had a little earpiece that you held up to your ear and there was a yes yes that's right yeah you had an ear deal that you held up to and then you talked into a little cone cone shaped thing that came off the, it was wood wow and that was what and uh, it had a little shelf came out and it was an eight-party line. I remember there were eight different people who had the same connection so that when you pick up the phone, you could hear any one of eight of those Different people. households. Different households Holy cow. could be talking to someone else. So you could imagine the advancement and how we felt like we were on top of the world when we got our first rotary dial phone. And I remember for a long time, it sat behind the couch. We didn't have a place to put it. <laughs> so I would come home and call my friends and sit behind the couch and actually talk to them. How many of your brothers and sisters were born at home? Six or seven of us. Seven, I think. I remember being a young boy going the first time with dad to pick up mom at the hospital. And I was privileged for, for whatever reason, to go with him. It was the first time that she'd had a, a child at a hospital. Yes. And we went down, picked up mom, and we were on our way home. I got to hold the baby. Yeah. And the car overheated, and I remember he got out, took the hubcap off, and went down into a creek and got water and came up and it into the radiator wow and we made it home <laughs> so most of your brothers and sisters were born at the house that you grew up in yes why it was the commonly accepted thing uh there was a lot of uh doctors who also served as midwives kind of thing and because it was january when i was born the doctor got stuck on the way to deliver me in the snow yeah yeah but I was the first one born in in that house, the home place there. And so when you say the home place, like there was several additions put on over the years, but it was a little more than a shack. 
Well, until I was probably 12 years old, we didn't, is when we got the indoor plumbing and we lived in two bedrooms, two bedroom house, a small kitchen that was not much bigger than a 10 by 12 and a living room a little bigger than that. So two bedrooms and how many kids? How many how many people were in this house? Uh, six six kids. Six seven, kids. Eight. So mom and dad had one bedroom. And two of the young siblings slept in their bedroom. On in little, like a crib or a twin bed, little twin bed kind of thing. And to, and I'm sure a crib. And then we four boys slept in the other adjoining bedroom on twin beds. Did you feel poor? <laughs> no, not really. We didn't feel... Doug has his favorite saying, you know, we were so poor that poor people called us poor. But we didn't feel that because we always had ample food. We struggled for clothes. Uh, very rarely did we ever get a trip to a clothing store or a yeah. shoe store yeah. to buy clothes for us. Yeah. It was hard for Mama, bless her heart, to, to really give us the, the what we wanted and needed, you know, for early childhood development and nurture. Did you ever struggle with resentment towards Mom or Dad because they took the time to have you and yet couldn't take the time to sort of be there to raise you. I, I don't think it was a cognizant thought that I connected to mom and dad's decision to have so many children as much as I think it was maybe some misunderstanding of what all goes into um, providing for kids and and emotionally not just meeting their physical needs but what all goes into the emotional well-being of a child i think you feel like your parents didn't fully understand that i think the culture that i grew up in did not i did not really understand everybody had large families it was a lonely feeling i felt alone much of my early teenage years or adolescent years, um, I felt, I just felt uh, alone to kind of figure stuff out for myself, you know, to become uh, aware in normal adolescence what your, of your sexuality. And those, those struggles were no different for me than they are for most. But, but I they didn't... were, they were compounded though, by the fact that you were raised in a very conservative environment and they weren't really addressed directly. Exactly. Exactly. It was it was the kind of thing you just didn't talk about in those cultures. Why do you think that was? You think that there was sex was kind of like a taboo subject. It was something that was confined to the bedroom for you And know, we just don't talk about it. And we just don't talk about it. A little bit of a Puritan view on that kind of thing. You just not the, not the kind of thing you talked about. So so if there was an issue or a problem of any kind that that raised its its head um, in those times, you just about avoided you, it. You just avoided it. You yeah. just didn't talk about it. And wow. You kind of suffered alone. And uh, I remember as a maybe 14, 15 year old, 
uh, really feeling alone. And I even struggled with just despair early on in like adolescence. I, I felt really despairing. I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody. So, I mean, I took it all inside. I carried myself with, uh, yeah, feeling the shame of that. Like, that was sort like of... There's something something genetically wrong with me that was sort of a traumatic it was a trauma for you yes it was i think there were some revelations that began to come after i went to bible school and it helped me to understand okay you're not abnormal it didn't heal the thing uh, even though i knew this was normal i carried the shame of it into my adult life and into marriage and into having children and um it was a journey it was a journey into walking out of some of the wounds of childhood of struggle those struggles those struggles to to feel like I belong. Please. So what I'm hearing is sort of like claiming victory over those things and saying, you know, I'm not going to let this defeat me, but I'm going to pass on something better. Very much so. Um, because in me, in Dallas Miller, there is not, there, there was never enough. I never mm. really believed that I could be enough. I, I struggled and, with that. And you tried to instill that in your children, that they were enough. Yes. We really? tried. We really? tried. <laughs> Your mother and I thought, we thought we were mature for our age. <laughs> we just did what we knew what to do knew. and yeah. what you do. And, you know, and so it was two. And then we moved off the farm where we were in ministry yeah. and had two more. So you, t- you talk about ministry um, like you were doing a drug and alcohol rehabilitation thing. That was sort of your voluntary service? Well, I went to Faith Mission right out of high school, practically, in 1969. In lieu of Vietnam. In lieu of Vietnam. So I served there for two years, and then we got married. What did that mean to serve? I was at administrative level, basically, making decisions, you know, helping guys register in, to putting out the guy who had too much to drink. (laughs) Saw a lot of stuff. Yeah. Look, like what? <laughs> well, I saw a guy climb over the desk and hit the superintendent, you know, right in the eye, give him a black eye, before he then jumped a couch and busted through the front window, the front plate glass window. What, because he was drunk? I'm not sure what all he was on, but probably a combination of things. Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, awesome. All right, uh, Dad, thank you so much for um, being here. We're going to take a quick break and grab some lunch here. Uh, go pee, you know, do what people do when they take breaks. And um, and when they drink too much coffee. Yeah, when they drink too much coffee. Um, I'm having so much fun doing this. This is, this is really great. Uh, thank you for listening to The Fortuitous Bites. I'm Lauren Miller, and we will be right back after this.
Welcome back to the Fortuitous Bites. Today I'm here with my father, Dallas Miller. I'm your host, Lauren Miller, and we are having so much fun. We're coming back from a break here and have had such an awesome discussion thus far. And I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I've got so many questions. I feel like it's going to take hours and hours for us to get into everything here. (laughs) But, um, you know, like I'll I'll probably edit the crap out of this later. (laughs) But um, just because there's there's so much ground to cover. Man, we have a history, don't we? Mm -hmm. I feel like at one point we almost had an adversarial relationship. I saw you as religious, very different from myself. But I think that as a young adult and as a child, I didn't really know you. I didn't really know who you were. You were sort of this veiled figure Mm -hmm. in my life. That makes two of us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's fair not to know yourself because I've been there too. I guess I don't feel like we understood each other. I guess I didn't know how to relate to you. I remember you taking me fishing once. I was maybe eight. And I remember as a boy thinking, I don't like fishing, (laughs) but I'd rather spend time with my dad than anything else. Mm -hmm. You were 30 years old when I was born. I I can't imagine having a kid when I was 30 years old, let alone 20. Well, I had left ministry in 1979 shortly after Lynette was born we moved to Plain City Ohio and I took a job at a plumbing store and then launched into a business of my own so it was during those years that you were born in fact we had a little advertisement that we ran in the local paper of you kneeling down beside a small engine with a wrench in your hand and uh and that was our advertisement, you know, you as a, a toddler. So we went from there to move to Alabama to find answers, to find connections, to find... What does that mean, to find answers? <sighs> it was a chapter of finding healing. So you moved across the country because you were sort of desperate for answers. Yes. Do you feel free of shame now? Do you um, uh, wallow in shame like you used to? No, no. Well, I remember when we lived in in Mobile, I launched in. All the churches had their own uh, uh, softball teams. Okay. So I became a part of one of those. Yeah. uh, Because you were a sports guy? Not because I was a sports guy, but it was the thing to do. The thing to do, yeah. Because we had small groups. Oh, right, right, And each one had their own softball team. So I played center field. And uh, we were playing the elders on this particular night, yeah. and the ball came out, did a funny turn, and I ended up totally dislocating my right knee. Your right knee. I remember and, that. And uh, the senior pastor came out, and uh, Brother Charles laid his hand on each side of the knee and just prayed. And I, my pain level went from a 10 down to a 1 or a half in just a few seconds. So I got up and kept playing, and I got up to bat. I got on base. I got to second base. I went into third base and tried to slide, and <laughs> the knee quickly dislocated again. So 
uh, I didn't feel like a very um, sports. I di I didn't excel in sports. Let's say it that way. I didn't I didn't excel in sports, so I didn't really feel. Um, I felt some shame in the middle of that, even because here I was not physically fit up yeah. to par. You know. Yeah. yeah. There's still ways in which perhaps I don't feel like I'm quite enough for my world or for the thing. But that's, you know, that's okay too because uh, the truth is I can't. I can't manufacture that kind of uh, wholeness. Yeah. It, it has to come from outside of myself into me and be become a part of me and yeah. uh, i think i i live with that understanding of that vulnerability that even you know, Brene brown says that you know that you come to you come to love the thing that and see the the value of the of thing. your own imperfection yeah yeah of the thing that you feel broken in yeah. would you say that you were struggling with i'll say mental illness there was a there was a real mental illness in the sense that I could not connect I didn't couldn't seem to connect the dots between the realities of what I thought who I thought God was and and the religious side because I had all these answers but I couldn't make them work so you're saying that that you were trying to separate out religion and faith and religion provided all these answers, but none of the freedom. Empowerment. I think just not feeling empowerment to put those principles that I knew were consistent with what lifestyle I wanted to live. You know, yeah. just, just like having a form, having all the words, having yeah. all the... Uh, you know, on the surface, it looked like it looked like everything was put together, and yeah. people thought I was well put together during that time. And but I think um, the complexity of it, the complexity of that that combination, lethal combination of religiosity and and secret, the secret thing that duplicity, yeah. That, yeah. du that du duplicity just it that that'll just yeah eat you alive wear you out so you feel like they were both sort of vices for you oh yeah that that the um comfort mechanism that religion provided do you feel like that was a, a false comfort yes i think it was i think it was um it was a false answer, but I felt like what we had begun, that journey toward freedom had... By the time that you moved to Indiana, you feel like you had a... There was something put in place foundationally. About what? Uh, who I was... And those were good years. Yeah. Those were really some good free years in which I think a lot of things were happening. But you, meanwhile, you guys were being released into adulthood. Right. Teenage and, years and yep. everything like that. Yeah. 
I remember um, uh, when we lived out on a farm out, out in Middlebury, um, there was so much sort of land to explore. Uh, again, it was another farm that where there was a lot of land to explore and there was places to go and things to do. And we were homeschooled at that time. And it was really sort of a place of such a nurturing environment. It was really rewarding um, to, to have that. One of the memories that I have is of the fort in the woods, which you had a little club of kids that were oh, your age right. that we went across the road and we put up an OSB uh, fort. We started building, had a floor in it and everything. Yeah, and yeah. I just remember that we'd get together, we'd go over there and because I always loved the woods. Yeah. And it was like, uh, you you loved the woods. You loved having this fort. And yeah. we had little trails out in there. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it ever got finished, but it served a purpose. It didn't. We had all kinds of fun out there. Just it was like the process was more than about the completed project, you know, the journey. So that's a that's a good memory I have of our time there um we tried to construct a or revive a go-kart at one point yes and we got it running after a fashion but that it, that never got finished that never got finished i think i i probably have a lot of woundings <laughs> trauma from well trauma if you will it's not really trauma um, but of, of projects that I couldn't ever really finish myself and didn't really have sisters to do things with. And I tried and tried and tried to do projects with, um, and we would, you and I would begin projects, but we rarely, if ever finished them. And that I think was sort of, um, was sort of hard for me mm -hmm. um that i sort of that's what i felt like our relationship was it was a start mm -hmm. of a relationship but it yeah. it was more about the journey more about what we were involved with it wasn't about finishing the project as much as it was about the journey it was about what we were doing together maybe for you I mean, I, I and I looking back, I see that now. But as a little boy, I I didn't understand why you know my dad wasn't my best friend, why my dad and I didn't ever you know complete a project together. Yeah. It was sort of like, and that was sort of the thing is that I didn't have necessarily resentments, but I just felt the absence mm -hmm. of this um, fulfillment of this completion. I think I was in those years really still looking for some of the basic meaning of of life and and wanting to to walk in uh, a maturity a, a level of maturity i realized how much wounding my mistakes my problems had caused and the ramifications of it and yeah. uh, that was really came home to me during those times. And I searched for answers. So do you feel like there was a craving for something beyond religion? 
a true craving for the divine, to have transformative power in our lives. Yes. You know, I would sit at Goshen College in my golf cart and sit at the railroad tracks with the train, you know, going right down through the center of campus and see these boxcars with the doors open and just something inside of me wanted just to board one of those and just i don't care where it's going i just i'm just totally bored with life here honestly i think all of us have thought that at one point or another i know i have it's like i don't care where you're going i just i just want to go get me out of here get me out of here so that really set me in an just another leg of the journey of finding Finding answers, finding a God who cared about me at a personal level. And so you felt like that was a transformative experience, that period of time. You found something that was beyond a church service? Yes, yes, yes. Um, So that converted to then a practice that we began to make at home where we just, we would sit in the morning and have our own devotions, personal quiet time and listen. You know, listen carefully, and which I think your struggles during that time began to some of your stuff and the and the early um, awareness of some mental health, Ill, Ill, mental health mental stuff illness, yeah, began to to manifest itself, and so I think the last ten years have been just kind of the reinforcement of that revelation and era. I think one of the stories that's funny from years ago when I, after I came back from Portland, Oregon, and I was at a fairly low, desperate place, I remember that you had come in from work one day and I was just feeling extremely crushed, extremely low. Um, And we, the three of us, you, mother, and I sat down and we were having dinner and I was really quiet. I think that you could tell that I was feeling very low. And I think that you wanted me to feel more encouraged and you were trying to draw me out and encourage me. And I felt badgered. And that is when I picked up a glass, a glass glass full of water and ice and literally chucked it with all my strength at your head. You dived out of the way, and it smashed into a million pieces. You know, I barely remember the incident. Barely remember. But it was probably some of the awareness of some deeper stuff that was going on for for you. The The, degree of how bad the mental illness was. yeah. And I think coming to that awareness, it's scary for any parent, you know, to come to that place. It was for us, I'm sure, and has been along the way, along the journey at at times, just feeling really scared, scared of your future, scared of even for our own personal safety. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I remember that. Because if I wasn't scared at that point, I should have been. Right. And I, I think that was like coming to the grips with the seriousness of what we were dealing with and 
the depression, the, mm, yeah. the constant struggle against the depression. So there was a lot of, I think there were a lot of fear and a lot of motivation to let's find answers. Let's, find answers. let's go for this. And I don't know what point we began to go to the NAMI classes, but I think it was somewhere in that that we decided to go for a 13-week family support system helping people understand mental illness, which was very helpful to find that support system in Elkhart County. And so that was probably the place out of which then the intervention came because you kept you kept talking about um, this depression, this thing, this awfulness. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, we felt like we were doing the right thing when we did the intervention thing yeah. then, and it proved to be a good step. Do you feel like in the earlier years you just you didn't have... Um, unaware you there was just an awareness that was just not there when it came to mental health i think it was so shrouded my understanding was so shrouded with religious thinking that mental illness is is simply just a a spiritual uh, deficit a spiritual thing yeah it's like and you know you can sweep it all under that rug if you want to but i think um the truth is there is a clear separation of body, soul, and spirit. Right. And as to where the beginnings, how that all started, doesn't right. really matter. Right. Because I myself went on antidepressants right. at times and felt a huge difference. Right. You know, like, and, and I was properly instructed in my, in my own journey that, your chemistry can get so messed up with right. with the depression process that it that you need help. You need medication. Right. A sort of lift out of that. Yeah. The understanding that I have now in terms of just how the circuitry of the brain works not to relieve responsibility but to have understanding that takes you to a place of empowerment. Yeah, to help you take responsibility. Yes. Yeah. So that I'm, I'm not, I'm not living in a victim role. Yeah. I'm, I'm, but I understand this thing that I'm dealing with. Yeah. And if medication is necessary, I'll do it. Or if therapy is necessary, I'll do it. Right. So I think that that gap has been bridged through venues that we were able to find yeah you know help both for ourselves both for myself and and for you and basically for you know family dynamics of things that that are there at a family level so it's 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 improved life altogether your your dive into how to how to deal with mental health issues has improved everything i think as a whole our family has grown tremendously and my siblings and I relationship becomes more important than being right than being wrong somebody being wrong right I don't have to establish that it is 
Now I will, I will, I will deem you, you, so important and so valuable that it goes beyond what you may think or what your opinion may you may express. I will, I will go beyond that. I will bridge that gap by saying it's more important that I be with you. Are you saying that you could also have someone, a family member, hate you and you could still love them? I think it comes down to that. I really believe that. The power to love, the power to is to have is to have this perspective of this person that's in your family. Yeah. That is so awesomely valuable that I'm going to I'm going to lay down my my agenda. I'm going to lay down my need to be right. I don't have to be right about this. It's more important to me that we are that we're connected, honorable. And you and I have had that. We've had that test. Well, Dad, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, son. I appreciate it being able to tell our story. It's pretty epic, honestly. Yes. And that's all for this edition of the Fortuitous Bites. I'd like to thank my dad, Dallas, for coming in. I've been your host, Lauren Miller. Make sure and remember, you don't have to live in shame because we all have flaws. Be kind to yourselves, nurture your brains, and as always, fight fear and hatred by spreading kindness. Kindness.